here in the book of Deuteronomy. We're at chapter 30 and 31 tonight. Last week we left off with the idea, we looked at the blessings and the curses, and at the end of that section we're looking at a, the idea where Israel goes into captivity in chapter 29. We looked at some of that and uh, in chapter 28. But as we begin here this week in chapter 30, verse 1, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, thou shalt call them to mind among the nations whither the Lord hath driven thee. So there, that's an idea of it, you're in captivity, and when you're in captivity, you're going to recall these things, these laws that I have been stating here while you're there. It's going to come to mind. Remember one of our key words was remember or do not forget. Moses is saying when you go into captivity, you're going to remember. It, it, will, it will bring it to memory. Now, I thought of a, some of you may have seen this before. This is a kind of the, from the secular world, a cycle of nations. Some of this parallels what we see Israelite going, the Israelites going through. In the bondage, and we will, for our context, we'll put this bondage up at the top, the land of Egypt. They came out of that, some spiritual faith, courage, uh, an era of courage, as they go in with Joshua into the land, liberty, abundance. Remember Moses preached against the idea of self-reliance because of your abundance that you had. Selfishness, complacency, apathy, and then dependence. It makes me think of this could be applied to a lot of nations in a generic way. And we can draw some application certainly from the nation to the nation of Israel from a diagram such as this. This is a cycle of nations. This is something man came up with, but, but for what it's worth, I thought it would be uh, interesting to look at that as we're looking at this period in uh, some of the things that are spoken of prophetically here by Moses that would occur. All right, let's go to the questions on chapter 30. There's, uh, we've got three on chapter 30. First one is, what would it take for God to return their captivity and have compassion. What's it going to take in verse 2? Repentance and obedience. Describe the level of difficulty in doing the commandments. In this chapter, later in the chapter, describe, describes the difficulty of the commandments. How does he describe that briefly? Not too difficult, not too hard. Uh, and what pathways did Moses now set before them this day? Life, life and death. All right, let's go to the text here, chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30. <clears throat> We're still in the section talking about the, the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. I put chapter 30 in with that section. But verse 1, we read, as they're in captivity, you will, you will remember these things. You will call them to mind in captivity. You'll remember. In verse 2, he says, you shall return unto the Lord thy God. That's a phrase identifying their repentance. 
and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart, with all thy soul. We've heard those phrases over and over again in Deuteronomy. All your heart and all your soul. How many times we've gone over that and looked at those ideas. So you will remember, and then you will repent of what brought you there, the idolatry, the sin, the wickedness. Verse 3, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity or return thee or release thee from captivity and have compassion on thee and will return and gather thee from all the peoples whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. So we're seeing the, on the heels of what we looked at last week, chapter 28, 29, we're seeing the captivity. But in captivity, Moses is prophesying here that you will be able to come out of that. There will be repentance necessary, verse 2, and God will return you to your land. Now, let's go on down to verse uh, 6 is noteworthy. Verse 6 is noteworthy again. The Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. Now, I think we're looking at a picture of the prospect of getting back to Jerusalem and getting back to the land that they once had. God says, I will circumcise your heart. Notice that we're still under the law of circumcision, but going back to chapter 10, verse 16, once again, the idea that they're to circumcise the heart, that's not only a New Testament concept in Romans chapter 2, but it's an Old Testament concept as well, isn't it? Circumcise the heart. God wants the heart. He wants that tender and loving heart that is, wants to serve Him and obey Him. Verse 7, The Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, that persecuted thee. So He's turning the tables now. Those that were your, those people such as Assyria and Babylon, those nations, they will be uh, brought low. And uh, verse 8, Thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all His commandments which I command thee this day. And notice some of the things that we saw. Hopefully you remember some of those things we saw last week. We see those once again here in verse 9. The Lord will make thee plenteous in all the work of thy hand, in the fruit of thy body, the fruit of thy cattle, fruit of thy ground, for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. You recall last week we looked at three big areas where they would be cursed or even blessed if they obeyed. Family, their fields, and their flocks. He brings those categories up once again here in verse 9. Your, your family, your fruit of your body, your fields, your flocks, your cattle, all these things will be blessed once again. If, verse 10, what? If what happens? Here's that if-then idea. Again, the blessings and the curses. If you do this, then. So verse 10 says, If you obey the voice of the Lord thy God to keep His commandments, His statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you return to the Lord your God, with here it is again, with all your heart and all your soul. So it sounds to me like the same, they're coming back, but as they come out of captivity, is God relaxing the laws? 
Is he relaxing the law saying, well, you didn't meet it the last time, so we're going to lower the bar for you and make it easier for you? Is that what God's doing? Not at all. Not at all. Verse 10, he says, you will keep these commandments and these statutes which are written in the book of this law. There's no relaxation of the laws. You know what men typically do when we see somebody doesn't meet the requirements, we start relaxing the laws, don't we? Well, let's make it a little easier for you to, to meet the goal. Let's make it a little bit easier. That's man's thinking, but that's not God's thinking, is it? That's not the way God thinks. And on the heels of that thought, let me catch up on my screen here. God will turn your captivity, verses 4 through 10. When he returns you to the land, the same laws are still in effect. The same laws are still there. No relaxation in those laws. You know, lest they think that, well, God, those laws that you had were too strict, too difficult for us. Maybe that's why he brings up in the very next verse, verse 11, this commandment which I command thee this day is not too hard for thee, neither is it far off. It's not too difficult for you to do. Maybe that's why he brings that up on the heels of the reinstating of the people in the land. And when you get there, the same laws are still in effect. These laws, he says, verse 11, are not too hard for you. Verse 12, it is not in heaven, so not in some far off place where we cannot reach it, cannot attain to it, that somebody might go up to it and bring it to us that we may hear it. Verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us and make us to hear it, that we may do it. It's not in some far off place. Some, it's not difficult. This is, he's speaking proverbially here of the idea that it's not too difficult for you. But the word, verse 14, is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. Now I want you to keep in verse 14, I want you to keep these three words very handy. Put them in the palm of your hand for just a moment. We're going to go back over these here. The word, verse 14, the word, mouth, and heart. Those three words, word, mouth, and heart. Keep those handy and tucked away for just a moment. We're going to go back over those. Now, Paul, in the book of Romans, discusses something very, very similar to this. This idea, Romans chapter 10. If you will, turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 10. We're going to make an application here to ourselves today under the new covenant. Romans chapter 10. We're going to start here verse 6. The topic that he's discussing is righteousness which is of faith. How do we obtain righteousness by faith? Verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith saith thus, don't say in your heart. Actually this is a direct quote from Deuteronomy that we just read. Deuteronomy 30 verse 12. Paul is making a direct quote. Don't say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who shall descend into the abyss or the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So if you look at uh, Romans here, we're going to go on down to... 
uh, note here these three words that we kept handy there just a moment ago. Verse 8, let's look at it once again. But what it saith it, the word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart. Isn't that interesting? Paul is quoting the very passage we just read in Deuteronomy. And he's using those three words, those three key elements of how we obtain righteousness by God. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that this law is the same as what Moses said. But there's some key elements to that that are the same for us. The word, your heart has to be involved. Our mouth has to be involved. Our mouth in this passage, Paul talks about the mouth is, uh, is doing the confessing in verse 9 and 10. We confess with our mouth and believe unto salvation. Moses said it's required as well. And Paul is also saying the same thing pretty much here. He's saying it's not so difficult for you to obtain it. Let's go back to the earlier part here to see a greater context of what Paul is talking about. Go back to chapter 9, verse 30. He's talking about the Gentiles or the Jews. How did, how did they obtain righteousness by God? What, by what means did they obtain righteousness in the eyes of God? Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness attained unto it, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, they were trying to follow a law, the law of Moses, a law of righteousness, and they didn't arrive at that law. Why, didn't they not, why did they not arrive at the law? Verse 32 says. Because they sought it not by what? Not by faith. They didn't seek it by faith. So Paul goes on to discuss that. The reason they did not obtain that law is because they were self-righteous. Didn't they? They tried to seek it on their own righteousness. And Paul goes on to say, well, it's not too difficult either for you to obtain. You have to seek it by faith. It's a law, as verse 6 says, the righteousness which is of faith. We cannot seek it by works. It's interesting how Paul quotes that, though, directly from uh, Deuteronomy, those ideas. While we're there, while we're thinking about that, what we just read there at the end of chapter 9, Romans 9, and beginning of chapter 10, we talked last week about one of the key reasons that the Jews went into captivity was what? We highlighted that last week. What was their sin that was so prevalent? Idolatry. Now when they come out of captivity at about 536 B.C. or so, their major problem from that time to the time of Christ is not going to be idolatry. It's going to be the self-righteousness that Paul highlighted there in, in Romans 9 and 10. It's going to be self-righteousness. Recall the many times that, that Jesus hammered them on the idea of, of hypocrisy and their, their self-righteousness. Unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees. Remember those ideas that Jesus taught? That's the problem that Jesus dealt with in his time when he came. So we're looking at idolatry was a problem before the captivity. And a great problem that they had after the captivity that was so prevalent was self-righteousness that Jesus himself had to deal with. All right, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. 
Any thoughts so far as we pause there before we get to verse 11? Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Yes. He mentioned that after the captivity, uh, God did not relax the law. Well, one reason for that, at least, is back in chapter 6 and verse 24, he said all of God's statutes are for your good always. Mm -hmm. So if he took away the law, he's taken away what's good from him. Mm -hmm. Now he's doing something that's bad for him, maybe. So that'd be one reason why he wouldn't want to yeah. relax that. That was for their benefit, wasn't it? All right. We get into verse 11, and we're entering a new, new section here in the chapter. Choose life. We talked last week about, I want you to feel uh, the anticipation of, of, or the crescendo, if you will, of what's taking place here. And as we get to the end of chapter 30, we're reaching that climax. Yes. I just wanted to make one point about verse 11 there. Uh, the King James Version uses the term, this commandment is not hidden from you. Later on, they would ask, what does God expect from you? Well, there's no excuse for them not to know what God expected of them. He'd given it to them in the law. They'd seen and heard God. They had heard the law from Moses, and as they progressed on uh, through the years and through the centuries, uh, that was retaught to them. Ezra uh, and others had uh, reread that. When we get to Malachi, they were retaught and retaught what God had said. And it's the same today. We can't walk around today wondering uh, if we're doing the right thing because we have everything from God's mind here that we can read for ourselves and know exactly what God expects from us. Yeah. And so uh, I, I like that use of the term hidden because a lot of people today even think that the real message of God's truth is hidden from us. It's wide open, mm -hmm. but we have to read it. And they had to study it as well. Very good. Verse 11, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, for this commandment which I command thee this day. We're going to read this whole section from here on the rest of the, this chapter. I want you to get the feel of Moses with the people at the edge of Canaan. They're in the land of Moab. Moses is about to finish his words. He's about to die a few days later. Now these are the last words of Moses. The very last words that Moses has to give them. And how strong and imperative he is about you have to make a decision. We've looked at Everything, all their history. He's prophesied of all their history. What's going to happen? Now you today here, verse 11. This commandment which I command thee this day, it is not too hard for thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, who shall go for us to heaven and bring it to us? Make us to hear it, that we may do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us and make us to hear it, that we may do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth, in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Verse 15, see, I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil, in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, walk in his ways, keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, that thou mayest live and multiply. 
And that the Lord thy God may bless thee in the land whither you go and to possess it. But if thy heart turn away and thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce you unto you this day that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land whither thou pass over the Jordan to go in to possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have set before thee life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life, that thou mayest live, thou and thy seed, to love the Lord thy God, to obey his voice, to cleave unto him, for he is your life. He is your life, the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. I want you to feel the emphasis there. He's saying, I call heaven and earth, verse 19, the witness against you this day. I have set this before you, life and death, good and evil. Choose which way you will serve. Remember Joshua gave those same words at the end of the book of Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. Moses says, choose life. He's actually giving them the answer, the right answer. Choose life. You must choose life. You feel the urgency. You must feel the urgency in Moses' voice as he words this. You know, a man is, he spent the last 40 years with Israel trying to urge them to obey, keep them in paths of righteousness, and now he knows he's about to die. These are his last words. Imagine if you had a, an opportunity to speak to an audience, a captive audience on your deathbed. What would you say? What would you say to inspire them to do good and to be righteous? How, what things would you say? Moses has that opportunity here before a captive audience to speak and inspire, give them the law of God, and encourage them and admonish them to follow God, to choose life. So verse 11 through 20, he says, it's not too difficult for thee. It says, choose between two paths. There's two paths you can take, life or death. That's the contrast we've seen. It's a very stark contrast. You can't get any further apart than life and death, can you? There's not two more opposites, life and death. So in the two paths, he says, one is life, which is good, and the other is death, which is evil. I'm made to think of a passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus sets two paths before us. There's a narrow way and there's a broad way. He says, choose the narrow way. The broad way, though, he says, leads to where? Destruction. When we look at a map, or we don't look at maps anymore, we look at a phone or whatever, but you understand the idea. When we look at a road, we want to know where it goes to. We want to know the destination, don't we? We're just not looking at 
Oh, that road. Look at that road in and of itself. Isn't that a neat road? We want to know the destination. Where does this road take me to? And Jesus is saying, Matthew 7 and verse 13 and 14, I will tell you where these roads lead. Broadway, many go there. It's an easy way, but it leads to the destination is destruction. So he says, follow the narrow. It may be difficult, but as this chapter said, it's not too difficult. It's not so difficult that you cannot do it, but it may be difficult. It may be it may not be a path that you would look down the road if you were there and you would see the fork in the road. You'd go, wow, that road is, looks off of potholes. It's not even paid very good. There's ruts in the way. That looks like a difficult road. I don't think I want to go that way. But if Jesus told you the destination, you would be much more likely to choose it, wouldn't you? Jesus set two ways before them. Moses said two ways. You can go the way of life or you can go the way of death. You choose which way. God gives us that choice and certainly urges us through the prophets and people like Moses to see and to know which way we should choose. Any thoughts or comments on chapter 30? All right, let's go over questions for chapter 31. First one is, what does Moses now encourage them to do? Okay, be strong and have good courage. Don't be dismayed. Their spiritual adultery is prophesied here, but how could they change their course? Are they destined for this? Destined for destruction? No, they just listen to the law, listen to the commandments, obey. And after the words of the law were put in a book, what was to be done with it? Okay. Read it. Put it beside the ark of the, in verse 25. Now, Deuteronomy 31. We are through the section of the blessings and curses. Now we enter chapter 31 through 34. These are the final words of Moses, Moses' final admonitions for the people, chapter 31 through 34. And uh, part of this is passing the baton to Joshua by God's direction. And some of it is more admonition for Moses, some leftover thoughts. Deuteronomy 31 Verse 1, Moses went and spake these words unto all Israel. Now notice this is all Israel. In the later part of the chapter we're going to highlight Joshua and then we're going to highlight uh, the elders and the priests. But for now, these verses, 
He's talking to all Israel. He said unto them, I'm 120 years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. As the Lord has said unto me, thou shalt not go over this Jordan. The idea, he, he is definitely not physically diminished, not weak as somebody this age might be. Chapter 34, verse 7 alludes to that. The idea of I can no more go out and come in, I believe, is a phrase that pertains to leaders. It is said of leaders and kings in the Old Testament, when they, when they go out and they come in, it refers to their strength. Their strength in leadership, their strength in their kingdom. Their kingdom is strong. Their leadership is strong. They can go out and they can come in. Moses can no longer do that, not because of his diminished physical strength, but because God says you must die and Joshua must take your place. Verse 3, the Lord thy God, he will go over thee, over before thee. He will destroy these nations from before thee. He's talking to all Israel. Remember, he can do this just like he did to Sihon and Og in verse 4. Then he turns his attention to, uh, well, let's finish it here. Verse 6, he says, be strong. And of good courage, fear not, nor be dismayed at them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong. How encouraging it is just to hear those words. When you're weak, when you're faltering, isn't it encouraging just to hear those words? Be strong and of good courage. Moses knew that. So he tells the people that be strong and of good courage. Something very simple as that can be very fruitful and productive to people. Verse 7, the Moses, Moses then called Joshua, said unto him in the sight of all Israel, You be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt go with this people. Now he's doing this, saying this to Joshua in the sight of all Israel. You also need to be strong and of good courage, for you shall go before this people into the land which the Lord swear unto you. And he will go before you, he won't fail you, nor forsake you. Verse 8, neither be dismayed. Now, in, just as a footnote, you might recall in, in Deuteronomy, I'm not sorry, in Numbers chapter 27, Joshua is ordained, so to speak, to take Moses' place. He doesn't actually take his place until now. This chapter is what we're seeing we might call the uh, commission. Joshua is being commissioned. Some versions even use the word inaugurated in that position in this chapter. He was ordained, selected in uh, Numbers chapter 27. So Moses' final admonition, verse 1 through 8, is be strong and of good courage. In verse 9 through 13, Moses directs them to write this law down, deliver it to the priest, verse 9, the sons of Levi that bear the Ark of the Covenant, and unto all the elders of Israel. Notice two groups, verse 9, the priests and the elders of Israel. Give it to them, and they have a directive to make sure this law is preserved, is read, that the people understand it, that they know it, see that directive given to these, the priests and the elders. So they have an obligation here, not only Joshua. Verse 10, Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, 
I want you to read this law before the people. And he goes on to say in the following verses, verse 12 and 13, I want everybody to be there. Everybody. Women, children, everyone must be present to hear the law read before the assembly. So they won't forget. So they will not forget the law. And now verse 14 through 23, we see the actual commission of uh, Joshua. Verse 14, the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thy days approach that thou must die. Call Joshua, present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I might give him a charge or a commission. This would equate with verse 23 as well. He says, Thou shalt bring the children of Israel, or, or rather he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge or a commission. Again, some of your versions would use the word inauguration. He's being commissioned officially for the role that he's about to take. It continues there in verse 14. Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting before God. God came down to them at a pillar of cloud as he met with Moses and Joshua. And what follows here? Would you describe as a pep talk that God gives to Joshua? An encouraging? Does he paint a rosy picture? Enthusiastic about these people of Israel? Oh, they're such great people. You will really, really enjoy leading these people. That's not what he does, is it? He's commissioned Joshua for a very, very difficult task. And when he does, he says, Joshua, these people, verse 16, are going to do what? Right off the bat. Joshua, these people, you're going to lead now. You're going to take them into Canaan. These people are going to do what? Verse 16. Play the harlot. That's not very encouraging if you're Joshua, is it? Joshua has a very difficult task. So verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. This people will rise up and play the harlot after the strange gods of the land, whither thou, they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled. And notice what he says in verse 18. I like the phrase here, I will surely hide my face from these people. That's a phrase that indicates God's favor is no longer upon Israel. God's favor and grace is not upon His people. He is hiding His face in verse 18. In that day, verse 18, for all the evil which they shall have wrought in that they are turned to other gods. Again, he's prophesying here of what's going to happen in the distant future. Now, therefore, write this song for you and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. Go on, skip on down to verse 21 of this chapter. It shall come to pass when many evils and troubles are come upon them that this song shall testify before them as a witness. It shall, be, it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. For I know their imagination and 
which they frame this day. I know what they are going to do. This would equate with verse 16. This would tie in very well with verse 16. They will go and play the harlot. God knows this day their imaginations and their thoughts that they will play the harlot. They will commit spiritual adultery. That they will forsake God, reject God, and go turn to other gods, gods of the land in which they will go. God knows this. So verse 22, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge or commission and said, Be strong. Now this is Moses saying it here. Be, you be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee, the Lord says. I'm sorry, that's, that, I have to take that back. That's God's uh, speaking there in the last part of that verse. And it came to pass... Verse 24, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in the book until they were finished, Moses commanded the Levites that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, Take this book of the law, put it by the side of the Ark. Now, I want you to go, let's stand back here and look at the chapter just a little bit from a, a little bit further away here. In verse 9 through verse 13, he was referring to writing the law, giving it to the priest, that they would write it down and, and that they would keep it and give it to the people. Now he changes, hold that thought for just a minute. We're going to talk about Joshua here and the rebellion of the people in verse 14 through 23. Meanwhile, while we're talking about that, he says, write a song. I want you to write a song that they will sing and remember. Then he picks back up again on that idea of the law, the words that we saw that began in verse 9. He picks that idea back up here again in verse 24. These words of the law, write them in a book, put them beside the Ark of the Covenant, verse 26, that it may be there for what reason? The last part of verse 26, that it may be there for a what? Witness. A witness against thee. Keep that phrase in mind for just a moment. Verse 27, I know your rebellion, your stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? It hadn't been too awful long they had committed fornication with the Midianitish women. That hadn't been too long in their history. You don't have to go back too far to see that. 24,000 were smitten because they committed fornication with the, the Midianite women. So verse 27, Moses says, you have been rebellious even now. You have been rebellious. Assemble yourselves, verse 28, all your elders of your, your tribes, your officers, that I may speak these words, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Notice that word. We see that phrase again. Now let's go back to verse 19. The last phrase in verse 19 said that the song would be a witness against them. The last part of verse 26 says that you'll put the book of the law beside the ark and it will be a witness against thee. The last part of verse 28, I call heaven and earth to witness against them. 
How many witnesses did the law of Moses require when there was an accusation? Two or three witnesses. Do we have that here? Let's go back and look at the accusation. Here's the accusation in verse 16. The Lord himself is accusing them of breaking the commandment. He knows that they will do this. Verse 16, you will rise up and play the harlot. There's the accusation. In the law of Moses, an accusation of law breaking had to be accompanied by two or three witnesses. Do we have that in this chapter? God provides his own witnesses, doesn't he? You will break the law. But there's witnesses. Verse 19, this song that I'm going to give you is a witness against you. The words of the law are a witness against you. And a very reliable witness that has been around quite some time, that is very stable, and part of our everyday life, that every person that's ever lived upon this earth knows and is aware of heaven and earth. They've been there from the beginning. God says, even heaven and earth, I'm calling them to be a witness against you. So we've got our witnesses, don't we? Then he finishes in verse 29. I know that after my death, Moses is saying, I know after my death, you will utterly corrupt yourselves, turn aside from the way. So Moses is basically echoing the thoughts of God. God is saying, I know you will do this. Moses is also saying, verse 29, I know that you will utterly corrupt yourselves, turn aside, and commit evil, and that will befall you in the latter days, because you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spake in the ears of all the assembly the words of this song until they were finished. That goes into to the next chapter. Any thoughts on chapter 31? Yes. I'm glad you pointed out what, what was said there about the witnesses. There, even after all of this emphasis, you see that there would be people, in, in fact, pretty well the whole nation, that set aside the law of Moses, had no regard for it, and didn't obey. Um, this was a very... And the penalty, the penalty followed as God said it would. The lesson for us comes from Hebrews chapter 10 because all of these concepts are brought up then to say, look, it's, um, it was a very severe thing if you set aside the law of Moses. And somebody who did that would die on the testimony of two or three witnesses, it says in Hebrews 10. And then he points to the new covenant and says, just think how much more severe it will be. If you sin, if you set those things aside, if you treat um, what Jesus did as unclean um, and you insult the spirit in that way, it'll be much more severe. So the lesson for us is to be very careful with these things. Be careful to do it um, and avoid the penalty. Very good. Any other thoughts? Yes. I think uh, two things. One, uh, you know, this, this is kind of a, a sad thing uh, to think about. Moses is writing this, this book in, in the hopes that the people will follow God and will obey his commands. And here at the end, the Lord says they won't do it. Um, but you also see Moses' response in dealing with these people. He knows 
that, you know, in his own dealings with them, they, they won't be able to do it. But I think it's also encouraging to see, uh, you know, the leadership of Moses in conjunction with the leadership of Joshua and their preparation and their planning for his, his departure and Joshua taking over and writing this law and in warning the people, they did delay that falling away from God. The, the people didn't totally turn away from God and, and abandon his law until after Joshua was gone. And so they did accomplish delaying it at least for a time because of all their preparation and hard work and, and reminding the people and warning the people constantly to, to follow after God's law. Unless we uh, lose hope, lose all hope, if you haven't read the Old Testament thoroughly, there were righteous people, weren't there? There were some righteous people. It's not as if we're saying that every single individual that was under the law of Moses was always evil and always bent toward destruction. There were some righteous people. But by and large, they fulfilled the prophecy here that God gave that they would commit spiritual adultery. And Moses knew that as well. And uh, hearing a lesson like this should have encouraged them to avoid it. Again, as you said, they did. And not, not until we come into the book of Judges do we start seeing their evil ways. And by the way, as we've mentioned before, that was apparently due in large part because the next generation that came along did not were not taught, did not know the laws of God. Any other thoughts before we, yes, okay, one just more? Just one more quick thing from Hebrews chapter 10, because of what you just pointed out, there, there was a, an unhopeful outlook for them. I'm glad you said that because Hebrews 10 ends with a much more hopeful outlook for us. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So he lays out very clearly what the penalty can be, but in a similar way to what Moses is doing, he's encouraging us to do well. Mm-hmm. Very good. So we'll get into chapter 32 next week, the Song of Moses. Appreciate your kind attention.